Good morning. I didn't want to be the first one. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. I would like to thank the Kingdom Conferences organizing team for giving this opportunity to share about the ministry we were involved in for the last eight years before joining Asbury. Um, it is a privilege to share about the ministry which we believe is a good expression of integral mission in India, especially in the context of the universities. Bearing in mind the political scenario in India, I will not be able to share the name of the ministry here today. This movement is already on the watch list of some of the religious fundamentalist organizations in India. This student movement began in the drawing room of a university professor in 1948. It was started with a concern for raising Christian witness in the university campuses. The movement had humble beginnings with a handful of students gathering for Bible study in a professor's living room. It has grown to a ministry that has its presence in almost all states of the country. It comes under the umbrella of IFES, or International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, uh, which is an organization of 130 autonomous evangelical student organizations around the world. Today, I will be presenting specifically the ministry in the state of Delhi and how it engages in integral mission. The ministry in Delhi began in early 1960s with the vision to see transform students impacting the campuses and the nation as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three groups of people involved in this ministry are students, graduates, uh, graduates being the ex-students who have graduated and are working in different sectors, and the staff. The ministry is driven by student initiative, graduate involvement, and staff facilitation, who seek to engage the whole university with the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. The aims are to engage relevantly with the whole gospel in the university, which includes various cultures, ideologies, and trends. The students are trained through evangelistic Bible studies, evangelistic training camps, and one-on-one -on -one mentoring to engage in personal evangelism, especially through conversations. In the current political scenario of India, it is dangerous to openly proclaim the gospel in the campuses. Hence, the students have friendly conversations with their friends and share the good news on a personal basis. As a staff, it is difficult to enter the campus, so the staff has to go in under various guises, sometimes, sometimes even act as students. Uh, sometimes we felt like undercover agents. <laughs> the authorities do not know about our presence in the campus. Hence, most of our ministry inside the campus happens via the students and the staff and the graduate functions function as facilitators. Another aim is to foster fellowship of students that they as a community of disciples engage in the campuses, a fellowship that not just brings in people but permeates to all realms of the campus. This fellowship is strengthened by weekly Bible studies, fellowship dinners, prayer meetings, and other such activities. This building of community is not meant just for the Christians, but reaches out to the students of other faiths as well. The students raise testimonies by engaging biblically and relevantly with the problems of mankind. One of the ways the ministry endeavor, ministry's endeavor for integral mission finds its expression is something we call engaging the university. One of the many ways we engage in integral mission, I would like to focus on this specific feature of the ministry today. We engage in the university with the intention to 
converse with the changing culture and ethos of the modern university, its dominant worldviews and ideologies, and how these shape the characters, the values, the priorities, and lifestyles of students and teachers, including the Christians. Therefore, we try to be incarnational so that we are fully part of the life of the university and committed to the flourishing of the university. And we don't just drop in from outside to conduct so-called missions on the university. As a commitment to integral mission, we seek to engage the whole university with the whole gospel. So we reach out to the faculty, the students, and every person on the campus, joining in the conversation over the big ideas that alter imaginations and change the world allowing the students to test and refine their faith so that it may become stronger and to redeem the academic disciplines the students are engaged in. The students are facilitated to think Christianly and look at their academics from the lens of faith, as the gospel has something vital to say across every discipline, from politics, economics, science to ethics, education, and the arts. The students, as the disciples of Jesus, authentically engage in all aspects of campus life and conversations so that the message of the gospel reaches and transforms every part of the university and the whole creation. You might have the question on how the students engage. One of the ways is engaging conversations. The ministry focuses on mentoring the students to engage in conversations with the university. This is intimidating as the university confronts their faith and Christian belief, especially in India. In the in the university context, we find people in search of knowledge, accomplishment, and satisfaction. But in many cases, the academic life does not fully satisfy, and the students end up seeking meaning and fulfillment in their life through temporary solutions. The movement encourages Christian students to enter these conversations, conversations on various ethical issues, music, sports, movies, peoples, people, and values. Through these conversations, the students bring in biblical values and refreshing perspectives that motivate others to think and be inspired. While doing so, the students also reflect, or in other words, reflect Jesus, or in other words, share the gospel story. In addition to engaging in the conversation, the ministry equips Christian students and faculty to engage in their disciplines. They, as Christians, are encouraged to realize the connections between the faith and the field of academics. This does not mean they are forced to impose a Christian worldview upon the field or create a Christian version of their subject. Instead, with the humble belief that all fields of inquiry belong to God, the students are encouraged to master the methodology of the field and participate in the critical process that uncovers and refines knowledge, fearlessly drawing upon God's wisdom and the knowledge of Christian tradition, revealed both in scripture and in one's faith experience to construct arguments that meet the highest biblical standards of scholarship in every field. Through this, through this field of discipline in the universities, through this, every field of dis discipline in the universities are being transformed with the kingdom values. Study forums we conduct is one, su one such example. The students are encouraged to start with issues and ideas Within, within one's discipline and locate a pressing problem to which the claims of Christianity will contribute insights. They then ask the question, how can my faith contribute and transform this area of my discipline? For example, a student of agriculture economics, while looking at the issue of agricultural economic policies and its impact on the poor, 
is encouraged to assess their research to see whom does it benefit more. How does their faith engage in this assessment? While the focus of the moment is the university world, the impact is not just in the campuses. The students upon graduation continue this idea of engagement in their public life and vocations. The students upon graduation extend their ministry to every sphere of the nation's life. So the graduates are encouraged to excel in their field of vocation while being a public witness. By God's grace, we have our students who have become, become agriculturists, bankers, theologians, civil servants, economists, scientists, physicists, engineers, doctors, educationalists, leaders in Christian relief and development organizations, and so on. They continue to engage in their fields as Christian and usher in the kingdom values in their vocation, thereby playing the part of the building of kingdom of God and the redemption of the whole creation, especially in India. As you must have already noticed, this ministry as an expression of integral mission does not have one specific area of social engagement, but equips leaders who engage Christianly with all creation according to their area of expertise. I would like to share some prayer points here for the ministry. Though the ministry has been there for more than seven decades now, there are many universities that are yet to be reached in India. As you all know, right now this religious and political environment of India is not conducive for Christian activity and it is becoming increasingly difficult to involve in religious activities in the campus. We would request your prayers for this ministry. Once again, I would like to thank you for this time. We would like to hear your comments in the talk back session. God bless you all. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Gijo, for sharing a little bit about your work. Well, good morning. My name is John Gallagher, and I'm the lead pastor at Embrace Church, which is a United Methodist congregation in North Lexington. It is a great honor to be with you all here today. Um, I want to give special thanks to Mercy and to the planning team uh, of the Kingdom Conference for inviting me to come share with you all today a little bit about what's going on in my community. So I began living and working in my neighborhood in North Lexington about 15 years ago. I became the youth pastor at my church on North Limestone Street, and I've been there ever since. When I started 15 years ago, I didn't know what I was doing. I was scared to death, and I never would have imagined I would still be there today, now as the lead pastor of the church. Um, I never imagined I would have the opportunity to help start two nonprofits in our building um, when I was here at Asbury in seminary, I was the guy who barely said anything in class. Um, I doubted myself, and I really struggled to believe that God could use me. Yet, by the grace of God, I've stumbled into some really awesome ministry, and my involvement in my community in North Lexington has genuinely changed my life. The last year and a half have been overwhelming, um, challenging, um, even frightening at times. I'm sure you all can agree with me on that. Something that has really helped me get through these hard times is reading about the faith and courage of Christians who have come before me. People who have faced incredible challenge and who have persevered. I just recently finished reading the autobiography of Howard Thurman. Thurman has been described as the spiritual mentor for the freedom movement. Folks like Dr. King and other activists sought out Howard Thurman for guidance and encouragement and spiritual insight. Vincent Harding uh, has described Thurman's work in this way. 
a profound quest for a liberating spirituality, a way of exploring and experiencing the crucial life points where personal and societal transformation are creatively joined. Personal and societal transformation creatively joined. This reminds me of the Wesleyan tradition, which at its best creatively joins personal and social holiness. This is the way I think about integral mission. And this is our aspiration in our community, to creatively join personal and societal transformation. It's a holistic vision for ministry. It's engaging whole people, right? Mind and body and spirit. It's also engaging whole communities, right? There are individuals make up communities, but so do families, systems, power dynamics, policies, issues concerning equity and inclusion and accessibility, all the parts integrated, holistic. The other day I uh, took this photo and uh, this is, these are the signs next to our main entrance when you enter our church. And every time I enter our church, since we got these signs put up recently, I just feel a lot of gratitude. I feel excited that so many great things are happening in our space. We have our church, of course, but we also have common good. We have matchstick goods. We have neighbors' immigration clinic. And these are not official ministries of our church, but they are critical partners. They are extensions of what we do. And it's through these vital partnerships that we are able to creatively join the personal and societal transformation. You know, our church has become a bit of a community hub. It's a place where so much happens throughout the week. And some of the ministries are official embrace programs, but I'll tell you most of the work being done in our building is being done by other organizations, being done by our partners. Our church's biggest assets, I would say, are building. We have a huge building. Uh, we have people and we have the gospel. And so we've opened our doors to organizations doing really awesome work, providing them free space, volunteers, and an opportunity for Christian community. Embrace's logo may not be stamped on everything we do in our neighborhood, but that's okay with us because we just want to see good work happen. I'd like to briefly just mention the three organizations in our building to give you a snapshot of what we're doing in our community. And if you're interested in learning more, then please talk to me afterwards, or even better, join us in the cafeteria for the uh, talkback session. We'd love to hang out with you for a little bit. Let's first talk about Common Good. Common Good is an inclusive community in North Lexington dedicated to whole families. They create safe space for our community to know love. They want to see thriving students and strong families in flourishing neighborhoods know and embrace their God-given potential. Common Good has after-school and summer programming uh, throughout the entire year with over 70 students from our neighborhood in grades kindergarten through 12th grade. We now have almost 30 graduates from our programs who are now young adults who are in college or involved in the workforce. Many of the folks from Common Good are involved in our church, and many of our people are involved in Common Good. It truly is a mutual partnership. Matchstick Goods is pretty new, uh, and it's also really cool. Matchstick Goods is an arts-based social enterprise of Common Good that employs students um, in our neighborhood. It employs and mentors them. And so through a fair wage job, 
uh, we're able to provide for young people an opportunity to explore ideas and abilities and passions. And so what they do is they make and they sell handmade ceramics. And their studio is in the basement of our church. And so it's pretty awesome that students and graduates now from Common Good now have jobs where they're getting paid and learning job skills, creating at Matchstick Goods. Finally, I'd like to mention Neighbors Immigration Clinic. This is a, a very new initiative. But Neighbors provides affordable, high-quality legal services to immigrants in Kentucky. They have a site at our church in the upstairs. Uh, they have also started mobile clinics now in northern Kentucky and Somerset. Um, we launched Neighbors at the beginning of 2020, which is not a great time to start a nonprofit, uh, but that's okay, um, in partnership with National Justice for Our Neighbors, which is a ministry of the United Methodist Church that establishes legal clinics all throughout the nation. In our primary areas of focus, we do a lot of things, but two areas we're focusing on are asylum work and deportation defense because these are gaps in services, particularly by nonprofits um, in the area. Two Mondays ago, I was uh, standing outside of our church at about 5 o'clock, and uh, I was chatting with a couple of people from our church, and they were commenting just on how interesting our church has become. And I would have to agree with them. In that moment, a lot of things were going on. People were arriving at our church for our Monday meal that we serve at the gathering, which is a Monday night outreach ministry we do. Over in our yard, one of our uh, unique members of our church was teaching a karate and self-defense class. About 30 elementary school kids from Common Good were walking back from the playground. Another 20 to 30 middle school and high school students were working on homework in the basement of our church. Four high school seniors were submitting their very first college applications. The attorneys at Neighbors were upstairs finishing a long day of seeing clients. Our cooks were busy in the kitchen uh, cooking a great meal for our community. The staff at Matchstick Goods were creating products in their studio. Our praise team was rehearsing for, in the sanctuary for our Monday evening worship service. One of our volunteer pastors was praying with a woman who was going through hard times. And all of this was happening at the same time on a normal Monday afternoon. And here's the really cool thing for me as the pastor of our church, that our church wasn't responsible for all of it. And honestly, we weren't responsible for most of it but it was still happening in our community through partnership and through collaborating. The prophet Isaiah challenged God's people to guard the common good, to do what is right and to do it in the right way. And that's our aspiration for our work. We wanna care not just for our own good, but for the common good, for the entire community. We wanna be a parish-minded church that sees our place of ministry, not just as the church, but as our entire neighborhood. And I've grown into that understanding of my calling even as a pastor. We found that the best way to do this is not through putting our heads down and trying to do it on our own, but doing it through partnership, through collaboration, and through working with others. Thank you all. Thank you, John. What a wonderful example of how God uses the church to fill in the gaps. Our structures and our systems can't do everything. No matter what side they lean on, either left or the right, they can't do everything. And that's why God has instituted the church and why the church is so important. 
Um, I want to share, first of all, my name is Tim, and I'm just going by Tim because, like Gijo, I work in a part of the world that is, uh, has issues with um, uh, ministry in the name of Jesus, and some of those issues are the result of our colonization of those countries, so it's not just them. But um, in order to ensure the security of our work on the ground there, um, I just go by Tim here. And the person that I am talking about today that's kind of featured in my story, uh, I've changed the name to Rita, her name. But, um, and let's see if I can manage this while I'm going along here. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to encapsulate our ministry work uh, by telling you the story of Rita. And our ministry work is very much focused on integral mission uh, to people with disabilities in South Asia. We first met Rita in 1999 at the age of 22, comes from a very poor Muslim family from a remote village in South Asia. And she suffers from a very serious form of spina bifida called Milo, I knew I was gonna screw this up, Milo meningezeal. And Milo meningezeal uh, is a protruding of the spinal cord in the lower back and you can see that picture there. Normally, children will have that issue taken care of right in the womb, but being that Rita was from an extremely poor family, that issue was not taken care of and continued to not be taken care of when we met her at the age of 22. And as a result of this issue of spina bifida, uh, it robbed her of her sensation uh, below the knees, as well as caused her to lose um, control of her bladder. Later on in her life, uh, and we, when we came to know her, we came to know her with uh, both of her legs amputated below the knee because due to the fact that she had this loss of sensation, she got infectious, infections in one leg, and another time, literally her stepmother hit her with an ax intentionally, and that got infected. And because of her loss of sensation, she just wasn't able to feel the pain of those infections, and um, had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee. So when we got to know her because of that, uh, she also had these poorly fitting um, prosthetics on her legs that caused infections in her stumps, and again, had a loss of uh, feeling there, so as a result, didn't generally take care of them. They smelled horribly. Her loss of bladder control caused her to smell horribly. In the end, she was really, unfortunately, just a smelly mess when we first encountered her. She was like, also like many other illiterate young men, women with disabilities in rural South Asia, and essentially had nothing to do but sit at home. In fact, they would think of themselves as, uh, I'm the watchman of my house, uh, that would just kind of take care of the things that needed to be done while everyone else went to work. They couldn't get married because families didn't want their sons marrying a disfigured girl. And they couldn't work because most jobs in the rural areas were difficult for physically challenged people to do. And they weren't sent to school because parents, uh, because of their scarce resources, thought rural girls with disabilities just weren't worth investing in. She, like so many other people with disabilities in South Asia, and quite for that matter, uh, for the world that matter, just didn't fit in. And that not fitting in in, South, in the South Asian context 
was explained as a karmic curse for past sins. And me being a Westerner going into that context, it was really hard for me to accept that people really believe this. But people really believe that, especially in the rural areas of South Asia. Rita's grandfather, and I've got to skip ahead here, Rita's grandfather, her lone cheerleader, brought her to us so she could attend our new vocational training program. We had just started uh, to train and equip these young women with disabilities to earn an income from their home as a home-based income source. Little did she or we know that that decision would change the trajectory of her life. After a week's stay at our dorm house, her father called saying her grandfather had passed away. And if that wasn't the most devastating news that she could hear, her father told us, please don't send Rita back to us. We don't want her. Well, we soon discovered why. Rita began manifesting very immature, childlike behavior. She wouldn't help out around the dorm house like other trainees did. She wasn't disciplined at all in doing her embroidery. She wouldn't take care of her infected stumps. She was horrible uh, as she was supposed to do. She, followed, she didn't follow her schedule of relieving her bladder uh, as she was uh, instructed to do. And consequently, she really smelled horrible. And some of her behaviors indicated she may have been, in fact, sexually abused, which is common for many young women with disabilities in India. She was a mental, physical, and emotional mess. And after one of many incidences, our local board, uh, one of the members of our local board of advisors strongly warned our house parents to send Rita away because they were concerned that she would falsely accuse them. But in sending, instead of sending her away, our house parent felt compelled by God to give Rita one last chance. So they set her down, lovingly confronted her, telling her that she would have to go if she didn't change. It was then, it was then that Rita began to open up about the abuse, the neglect, the discrimination, the taunting, the labeling as cursed, all those things that she'd experienced right from childhood to adulthood. She truly epitomized what Bryant Myers in his book, Walking with the Poor, calls that marred identity. And that marred identity has psychological, emotional, physical, social, economic implications, and in the end, spiritual implications as well. So her opportunity to share all this with this house parent, or these, these house parents, very good friends of mine, um, was very cathartic for Rita. Being forced to come to terms with her past and having people praying with her and giving her words of encouragement was something she'd never experienced before. Through the patience and kindness that she experienced from our house parents, she encountered the love of God the God that she realized could save her life. Right then and there, she decided she was going to follow Jesus and turn her life around. And turn her life around, she did. She began taking responsibility for the upkeep of the dorm house. She took care of her hygiene and the infected wounds on her stumps, which eventually were able to heal as a result of her care for herself. She became more diligent in her embroidery training and literacy classes and distinguished herself as a star student. 
She also devoted herself to learning more about this loving God who loved her. And these are based on reports that I got from the hostile parent when my wife and I were back here in the States, and they just couldn't believe how Rita had changed her life around. It was amazing for them to see. Let me see if I'm... Oh, it's not going. There we go. After a year, she left our program completely cha a completely changed person. She became the top income earner for our artisans with disabilities and earned enough that she and her friend decided to rent their own place in the village. With our help, she was also able to purchase some brand new prosthetic legs that were more high quality, and as a result, she didn't get uh, those sores on her stump stumps anymore. Rita's earnings came to the nose of her family. They wanted her back, suddenly, but she refused. But when they asked her to help fund her brother's wedding, about a year later, she agreed to help. That act of giving, coming from a young woman who was once written off as useless and cursed, spoke volumes not only to the family, but the whole community. And Rita was bold about her faith in the community. She started a fellowship in her home with our help that was gaining the attention of the village and the powers that be from the village were not happy. They didn't want Rita attracting people into a new religion and creating a disturbance. So they sent a police officer to threaten her with arrest. But he was taken back by Rita's response. She told him, she's got nothing to lose. Going to jail, it's not a big deal. And she'd gladly go, but she first wanted to tell this police officer about how God changed her life. And she proceeded to tell her story. And after hearing how her life had changed since coming to faith in Christ, <laughs> Rita tells us that the officer started tearing up, probably like me. <laughs> and he said to her, it's not you who should go to jail, but it's me and the people that sent me that should go to jail. He walked away, and Rita's house fellowship continues to this day. Our staff tell me her story and passion for Christ continue to encourage others, but especially those with disabilities. Now, I know, I'm getting behind myself here. There we go. I know Rita is an exemplar who kind of stands out from the rest, and we've got to be really, really care careful about sharing stories of exemplars. Um, part of the reason is our expectations are that everyone's going to be like that in our ministry work. Well, that's not the case. We have failures. We have people that we've failed. And we also have to be careful um, to understand that as we talk about exemplars, about using the world's understanding of success, and particularly a capitalist definitions of what success is. We've got to be very cautious about that. The fact is, though, Rita still struggles. In fact, she just uh, recently almost died from tuberculosis, and she's really struggling through this time of pandemic. Fortunately, and this is all because of her, nothing of us, but fortunately, her family has taken her back. She's got her own little house that she built with her own money, her own little room that she built to the side of their house. 
And in fact, she got the government to give her money to build a house in another village. Okay, so she's the owner of two houses now, or basically a room in another house. And she's, I asked my, our, our staff member, okay, so is she renting that? Is she getting some money? I'm sorry, I'm going all over time. But um, she said, no, she's given that to her brother, for her brother to stay in. So I want to just end this time by just saying, discipleship is so important. Discipleship has been vital in Rita's life to become the person she is. Discipleship was a part of our house parents' life to be the people that they needed to be for the sake of Rita. Um, and finally, uh, I think discipleship is important for the sake of integral mission. We can't lose track of that. We can't let things like secular humanism convince us that we don't need any particular faith to become the communities that we need to be and to have an understanding of human flourishing. Discipleship is vital. Jesus' call to make disciples is, I believe, the, the way in which integral mission can happen throughout the world. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to hear of the wonderful work of, of Jijo and John and of the work that you're doing through our team in India or in South Asia. <laughs> but I pray just for your blessing uh, and continued hand upon these works, Lord, that they might be, uh, continue to be examples of integral mission in the places that they work. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.